Well, a couple of weeks ago, I walked by my daughter's room, Scarlett Needham's room, and uh, as I walked by, I saw that their room was a complete mess. I'm sure uh, those of you who are parents have experienced that many times, but the bed wasn't made, uh, their play clothes were all over the place, their books were everywhere, their dolls were everywhere, and so uh, I walk out, I see them playing in the backyard, and I call them to myself, and I say, hey girls, you guys need to clean your room, I want you to make your beds, I want you to pick up all your play clothes, hang them in the closet, I want you to pick up your books, uh, put them in the bookshelves, and take all your dolls and put them away. And so they say, okay, yes, Daddy. And so they go into their room. Uh, about 20 minutes later, I see them back out, playing outside. So I decide to go check the room, see you know, how it looks. And on Scarlet's side, the bed's completely made. The clothes are all hanging up. The books are all on the bookshelf. The dolls are all away. She did exactly what I wanted. On Eden's side, the bed hasn't been touched except for everything that she had. She just piled it on top of there, and that was her all done. Uh, but, you know, so Scarlett did what I asked her to do. Uh, she heard and she obeyed. And Eden, on the other hand, she heard, but uh, she definitely didn't obey. You know, all of us growing up, you know, we, we had parents or authority figures who told us to do things like clean our rooms, and we had that choice. We, we hear what they're telling us, and then we have a choice to respond by either doing it and obeying or not doing it and disobeying. And, and you know, we probably wish that it only was when we were kids, but as we get older, we still have authority figures in our life that we have to listen to, or we don't have to, but we have consequences if we don't. You know, we have bosses, uh, we have the IRS, we have government, we have different people who tell us there's certain things that we need to do, and we have to make a choice whether or not we're going to obey that. Your boss tells you to do something, you don't do it, there's a consequence. Most likely you'll lose your job. You know, the IRS says you owe this much money in taxes, and you say, no, I don't think I'm going to pay that. Well, there's consequences to that as well. Now, I bring this up because here in chapter 8 of Luke, the focus is on how we hear the Word of God. Ultimately, when we hear it, what are we doing with it? That's the challenge for us. Of, you know, we're hearing God's Word, but when we hear that, what do we do? Do we obey it? Do we put it into practice? Or do we just hear it and disobey it, as Eden did when I asked her to clean the room, or as we often do so often in our lives? You see... In our relationship with God, it's just like our relationship with our parents or our relationship with our boss or our relationship with the IRS. God's going to tell us there are things that we need to do, and we have a choice to make. How are we going to respond? Are we going to respond with being obedient to what His Word says, or are we going to respond to being disobedient? And just like with our parents and our bosses and the government, there are consequences when we disobey. When we make that choice to say, you know what, God... I know your word says this, but I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to obey that. I'm not going to put that into practice. There are consequences in our lives when we make that choice. Here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is going to share with us one of the most well-known parables that there are. The parable of the sower, seed, and soil. And the real main focus of this parable is how we hear the word of God. What is it that we do in response to that? The word of God is given... And Jesus, as he shares his parable, he's going to share that there are different types of responses to the Word of God. There's only one good one. He's going to give four different responses. Three are bad, one is good. And as we go through these verses this morning, I want you to think about your own relationship with the Lord. I want you to think about your own response to the Word of God. And then as we see these different individual responses, I want you to look and see where you're at. 
Are you obeying God's word or are you disobeying? Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1, says this. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Well, last week we ended in chapter 7, and we saw Jesus showing great love and kindness and forgiveness to that woman who came to him seeking forgiveness from her sins. And he's there in that Pharisee's house, Simon, and now he leaves that Pharisee's house, and we're told that he went through the different cities and villages there in the region of Galilee, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And we're told that the 12 disciples are there with him, which is common knowledge that they traveled with him. But we have another group that we're told by Luke was joining Jesus and going from place to place with Jesus. It was a group of women, many women actually, and Luke refers to three of them by name. There was Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast seven demons out of. There was Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and there was Susanna. Now, this is very interesting because back at that time, rabbis would not allow women to travel with them, would not have women under them in that discipleship type of role. And the ultimate reason was is because they felt that women were inferior to men. And so women did not deserve that privileged position, that privileged uh, type of going around and being with them. And notice that Jesus does not view women that way. Jesus had many women followers. Actually, I think it's interesting, if you look to the gospel, you never see any woman say anything bad about Jesus. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In Christ, men and women are one, are equal. In our society, pretty much the world society, normally we place men at a higher status than women. In most societies, women are inferior to men. That's not the case in God's eyes. Jesus says, when you come to me in Christ, there is an equality between men and women. There's an equality between different races. There's an equality between rich and poor. And this is something that's so wonderful. God values women just as much as men, and he made them equal in Christ. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, Luke continually shows the value that Jesus places on women. Well, next Jesus is going to share this great parable, very well-known parable, verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, they had come to him from every city. He spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell on the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So a great multitude of people are gathered around Jesus, and Jesus decides to speak to them using a parable. Now, a parable is basically a short story meant to engage the listener and reveal to them a spiritual truth. It's a story that takes ordinary circumstances that the audience would be familiar with and then attaches to it a spiritual truth to help them 
comprehend and understand. In this parable that Jesus gives, he tells about a farmer sowing seed. Now, in that culture, in that time there in Israel, this was very common knowledge. Farmers were all over the place doing this, and so most people would have seen or even had parents or even themselves would have farmed at some point in time in their life. And so hearing about a farmer sowing and casting out seed, and they would have known of the different soil there in Israel, Jesus' audience would have been familiar with this. It was a very common occurrence. And so he starts with this familiar uh, story of a farmer going out and sowing seed, a picture that people could understand, but he uses this familiar occurrence with this farmer sowing seed ultimately to reveal something deeper. He has a spiritual truth that he wants them to understand with this. So he takes this ordinary set of circumstances the audience would have been familiar with and he places this spiritual truth alongside of it. Now in this parable, the farmer goes out and he begins sowing seed and he tosses this seed out, and it's not like today where we have you know, these rows that we plow up and we put the seed in there. There in Israel, they just tossed it everywhere, and there was different ground, and it would fall different places, and you know, sometimes the seed would get onto the good ground and grow, and other times it would go on different soil. And so Jesus says, you know what, there's four different types of soil, different types of ground that the seed falls on. The first type of soil the seed fell on was the wayside, or the the dirt path that was traveled on by people. Because this was traveled on so much, it was trampled down. This would have been very hard ground that people walked on over and over again. And so as the seed hits this ground, it doesn't go in because it's too hard. And for the birds who are flying around, it's like the farmers giving them this feast because these seeds are sitting there, and so the birds swoop down, and they come, and they devour the seed. The second type of soil the seed fell on was rocky ground. So on the top, it looks like the soil's nice, but just real close to the top of the soil, there's all this rock, and there's a lot of limestone and different things, and so right under the soil, there's rock. And so right away, the seed kind of springs up because there's a little bit of soil, but the roots can only go down just a little bit before it hits the rocks. And because of that, it can't go down and get the moisture. And so it springs up and the sun comes out and the heat of the sun just scorches it because the roots have no depth to them and they can't go down to get the moisture they need to survive. And so that seed dies. The third type of soil the seed fell on was the seed with uh, the soil with thorns. The ground's very receptive, maybe a little too receptive because it receives the seed, but it also receives all these thorns as well. And so the seed's allowed to grow and germinate, but so are the thorns around it, and the thorns start to choke the seed, and ultimately that which is growing gets choked out by all the thorns around it, and it fails to yield any fruits. The fourth type of soil that the seed fell on was the good soil. This soil was soft, it had no rocks, it had no thorns. As the seed falls into this soil, it's able to have its roots go down deep, it's able to grow, and most importantly, it's able to bear fruit. It produces fruit, Jesus says, a hundredfold. Though this is commonly referred to as the parable of the seed and sower, I think it really should be called the parable of the soils. Because the seed is always the same. What makes the seed grow or not grow is the soil. The soil is what changes things. And so really the focus of what Jesus is bringing to us here is not so much the seed as much as the soil that the seed hits. 
Well, as Jesus told this story, the people would have understood his picture. They would have been able to identify with this picture of a farmer sowing seed. And, and you know, now they're kind of thinking, you know, well, we, we want something deeper. At least some would be. And notice how Jesus finishes the parable. He, he shares this, and then we're told he cries out. So he's probably just speaking in a normal voice as he shares this, and he finishes with quite a loud voice, because this is the point he wants them to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's how he finishes this parable. For those of you who have ears to hear, hear what I'm telling you. For those who are interested, for those who wanted that deeper meaning, for those who wanted to understand this truth that's more spiritual that Jesus was trying to communicate, he says, those of you who have ears to hear, let them hear. Now, it's interesting because Jesus goes on to kind of give us an understanding of why does he use parables and what's its purpose. Notice what he tells us, verse 9. Then Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Notice the disciples, they hear what Jesus says, they hear his cry at the end, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear, and they now, because they want to know the spiritual truth, they come to Jesus. They want that deeper meaning, they want that spiritual truth, and they ask him, what does this parable mean, Jesus? And Jesus' response is very interesting, he says to them, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. The disciples who wanted to know the things of God were given the mystery of the kingdom. They could be spoken to plainly, but often others were taught in parables so that Jesus says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That's from quotations because Jesus is actually quoting Isaiah 6, 9. Now this is interesting because when Isaiah saw the vision of God and he says, here I am, send me. God says, great, I'm going to send you to the nation of Israel, and I'm going to give you a message for them. And God sent Isaiah with this message, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. You see, God told Isaiah to do this because most of the Israelites were not ready to turn back to God. Most of the Israelites were not ready to give their life back to God, but God says there is a remnant. There's a percentage, a small percentage of the Israelites who are ready, and as you go with this message... And you tell them, you know what? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. There are going to be those who are desperate for God, who are desperate for me, who want to turn back, and they're going to come to you, and those are going to be the ones that ultimately come back to me. But the majority are just going to hear that message and tune it out because they're hard, and they don't want anything to do with me. And so just preach that message, and it's going to show who actually wants to follow me and who actually doesn't. And that's basically what Jesus is doing with parables. The parable reveals who's open, who wants to hear what Jesus has to say, and who's hardened, who's not open, who doesn't want to hear what Jesus is saying. You see, a parable isn't exactly an illustration. A good teacher can state a truth and then illustrate that truth through a story or analogy, but when Jesus uses parables, he doesn't start with the truth. Instead, the parable is kind of like a doorway. Jesus' listeners stand at the doorway, they hear him. If they're interested... Then they walk through that doorway. They inquire more. They want to hear the spiritual truths. They want to understand what Jesus is saying. So those who are interested, they inquire like the disciples did and come to Jesus. But for those who are hardened, they kind of stay outside the door. 
They don't want what Jesus has to say. They don't really care what Jesus has to say. And so they don't inquire anymore. They don't desire anymore. And so this parable is a great way to kind of test what the soil of the listeners were. If they were hardened to the message, if they were hardened to Jesus, and if they were hardened to his word, then they wouldn't want any more, and so they were the first three soils. But if they were like the disciples who desired more, who came to Jesus for more, who wanted more, who wanted to understand what he was saying, then they were the ones of the good soil. Those are the ones willing to hear, as he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. How the people heard definitely revealed their soil. Well, the disciples asked Jesus to explain the parable, and now he's going to. So we don't have to guess what it means. Jesus tells us exactly what it means, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these having no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus explains this parable to them and tells them what everything means, what everything represents. He says the seed that the sower is casting out, that represents the word of God. The idea behind the word is God's revelation to mankind. And I think it's speaking about two different things. First and foremost, the written word, which we have, which is the Bible. And secondly, the living word, which is Jesus himself. In John 1, 1, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking of Jesus, the living Word, the one who came and showed who God is in flesh. So the seed in this parable is representing the written Word, it's representing the living Word, and ultimately the question is, how do you respond to God's Word? How do you respond to the Bible, and how do you respond to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, the four different soils in this parable represent the different responses that people have to God's Word. Four different responses to the actual written Word, the Bible, and four different responses to Jesus Himself. So this parable is all about how people respond to the truths contained in the Bible and how they respond to Jesus. The first group, Jesus says, they're like the soil on the wayside. Now remember, this soil was trampled down because it was walked on so much, so it's hard and so Jesus is saying, these people are hard-hearted. They're hardened to the Bible. They're hardened to Jesus. They're hardened to the truth of God's Word. When they hear it, they never give it a second chance. They don't want it. And then the birds, we're told, are like Satan, who comes immediately and takes the Word that was sown in their hearts. I think it's important to know that Satan doesn't want the Word of God to take root in a person's heart. I actually think that Satan recognizes the value of God's word more than we often do. 
I think he realizes the power of God's word more than we often do. And he's desperate to keep the word of God to take root in your life. Because he knows when it takes root in you, it's going to change you. You're going to become more like Jesus. And that's the last thing he wants. If the word of God takes root in you and you haven't yet accepted Christ, you are going to. And that's the last thing he wants. And so Satan, he loves hard-hearted people because when they hear the word, right away, boom, he's there trying to pull away and remove any type of of remnant of what the Word might do in their life. I think we all know people who are hard-hearted. I'm sure many of us were hard-hearted people to God's Word. Many of us were hard-hearted to Jesus. You come and you talk with them, and you share Scripture with them, and they don't want anything to do with it. They just tune you out. They close, you shut you down. You know, they don't want to hear God's Word. When you share with them about Jesus, the same thing. Maybe they change the subject. They, they just, they're hardened to it. They want nothing to do with it. You know, and sometimes you, you get them to listen, but yet it seems like what you share just gets snatched away. And you recognize the enemy is fighting this battle too. He wants to destroy, you know, it's like, oh, they, they finally listen, and it seems like you talk with them a few days later, and man, it looks like what you shared just got snatched from them. I think this is why it's so important to pray for these people that you're trying to reach that are hard. Because one, you need God to soften their heart, because if their heart's not soft, as we're going to see here, then they're not going to receive the word. They're not going to receive Jesus. So we need to pray that God would soften their heart. But we also need to pray that God would protect them from the attacks of Satan, because Satan wants to do everything he can to stop them from receiving that truth, from receiving God's word. The second group of people are like the rocky soil. You know, they receive the word of God with joy, but... Because they have no roots, they only believe for a short time. These are people who hear the truths of God's word. Uh, they receive it real quickly, maybe not really recognizing or thinking through or counting the cost of what they're making a decision on. But when things get difficult, times of temptation come, they fall away because they have no real roots. This is something I think we've seen in the church world a lot where our message has become so watered down, our message has become so secret sensitive that people aren't really hearing the full truth. It's just, oh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And people say, oh, wonderful, that's great. Well, that is great, and that's part of the truth, but that's not all the truth. And so when someone hears that, they think, oh, well, Jesus loves me, has a wonderful plan for my life. I want that. Let me have that. Good, great. And all of a sudden they say, I want to follow Jesus, and they haven't been told anything else, and they realize, well, wait a second. This is a lot harder than what I signed up for. Now come no one told me these things, and they say, forget this. I don't want this anymore. And I think the part of the problem is we're not telling the whole truth. We're not giving them the side of the coin. Well, wait a second. You're a sinner, and you need salvation. You need forgiveness from God. And once you accept him, it doesn't mean that your life's going to be full of a bed of roses. It's still going to be difficult, but you're going to have the power of God to help you get through those difficulties, get through those trials. And so we need to help people understand what it is they're accepting. I think it's interesting, every time that G people came to Jesus, he always challenged them to count the cost. I want you to count the cost of following me, because following me is not easy. Take up your cross daily and follow me. He never gave some easy, oh, you follow me, everything's going to be so nice and easy. That wasn't the message, and everyone who's Christians know that's not the reality either. But when we tell that story to people, it's not the full truth. And we shouldn't be surprised that a lot are like the rocky soil because they don't really have the truth. Their root doesn't go deep. And when they find out, hey, wait a second, this is harder than I thought, they turn away and fall away. The third group of people are like the thorny soil. They receive the word, but they allow the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life to choke out the word of God. 
We might say this ground is too fertile. God's words grow there, but so does everything else. And this is the problem. And I think this is probably the most common group of people that we come across in the world today. People who kind of, you know, oh, they're, they're open maybe to some of the things that you share about God's word, but the reality is they're pursuing so many other things that this world has to offer. They kind of want God plus all the pleasures of the world. If I can have both, great. But the reality is it doesn't work. This is what Jesus is saying. You know what? If you have all these other pleasures and these other things are like the thorns that ultimately just choke out the word of God. An interesting passage of scripture. Matthew chapter 6, 24 Jesus speaking, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. See, the reality is people are trying to say, you know what, yeah, I'll serve God, and I'll serve the pleasures of this life, and I'll serve my pursuits for worldliness. You know, I'll have both. I'm going to have one foot in the church, I'm going to have one foot in the world, and I'm going to get the best of both worlds. That's their mindset, that's their thought process, and they think, oh, this will work. And Jesus says, no, you can only have one master. If you really want to make God your master, then you have to fully pursue him. You can love him, but you try to divvy it up to another master as well, and ultimately that other master is going to keep you from truly loving and being loyal to God. I think this is a very common occurrence that we see in the world today. People trying to serve God and serve the pleasures of life at the same time. It just chokes out the word of God, chokes out your relationship with Jesus. The fourth group of people are like the good soil. They accept the Word of God. They obey the Word of God. And most importantly, they bear fruit, thus fulfilling the purpose of the seed. You see, all four of these groups hear the Word. The seed's there. That represents the Word. Everybody hears it, but there's different responses based on the different individuals and where they're at, where their heart is at. This parable shows that when the word of God is received as it should be, something happens. You bear fruit. When the word of God is received as it shouldn't be, there's no fruit. And so when the word of God is received, God says, the ultimate thing I want to see happen is I want to see fruits come from the proper reception of my word of Jesus Christ. Fruit, what are we talking about? Well, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you hear the good news of the gospel, when you hear the word of God, this should be something that is coming out of your life. When you accept it, when you're that good soil, you obey it, then you should see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that should start coming out of your life. It's a natural byproduct of someone who's not just hearing the word, but accepting it and applying it to their life. This is what happens when you have that relationship with Jesus. So the focus of this parable is when you hear the word of God, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. What is your response not only to the written word, but also to the living word, Jesus Christ? What's your response to the truth of the Bible? What's your response to the person of Jesus? Are you going to accept them? Are you going to obey them? Are you going to reject them? Are you going to disobey them? 
If you're not a Christian, if you haven't accepted Christ, the most important question for you is what is your response to Jesus Christ? You see, the Word of God clearly says there's only one way to be forgiven of your sins. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through accepting what Jesus Christ has done for you, that he paid the price for your sin and my sin on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, that you have to make a choice to ask that Jesus would forgive you of your sin, to admit that he is God, to admit that he conquered sin and death, and to ask him to come into your life. The word of God is clear with what you have to do to be saved, with what you have to do to have a relationship with God. But the question is, are you going to respond to God's word? Are you going to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ with obeying that, with accepting that, with doing what the Bible says? Or are you going to be hardened to what Jesus has done for you? Are you going to not let what Jesus has done to you take root in your life? Are you going to let other pursuits and other pleasures of life choke Jesus out? Or ultimately, are you going to be like the good soil, receive Jesus' forgiveness, ask for that, accept that, and receive salvation? Now, for those of us who have already accepted Jesus, you know, we still continually hear the Word of God. And so I think this parable is just as applicable to each one of us. And a good question to ask ourselves is, what is our response as we continually hear the Word of God? When you're hearing the Word of God here on Sunday when you hear it on Thursday, when you're studying it on your own, what's your response to the Word? What's your response to Jesus and your relationship with Him? Are you hardened to what you hear? You know, I think it's interesting when I talk to Christians, you know, well, they'll bring up a lot of great lovely passages that we all want to quote, the great promises, the great love passages, and we say, oh, I love the Bible. Oh, really? Let me share some other passages. Those passages that convict us of our sin. Those passages that say, you know, there's certain things that we shouldn't be doing that we are doing. Oftentimes we say, oh, I'm not hardened to the Word of God. Well, you might not be hardened to all of it, but is there a portion of God's Word that's challenging or convicting you that you say, you know what, I am hardened to that because I don't want to accept that. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to do what that says because that's asking me to change what I'm doing. That's asking me to do something that I'm not ultimately willing to do. Do you let... Satan, take what you heard from you. Because that's what his desire is. is he wants to rob you. you know, I think it's interesting on Sunday, you come to church and all sorts of different things distract you. But yet you can go and do stuff all throughout the week. You go to the movies, everything's all fine. You, know, you open up your Bible and your mind is flooded with all sorts of distractions. It might just be things that you need to do that day or, or something that you have to remember or whatever. And you open up the newspaper and your mind's just blank. Everything's good. The reality is Satan doesn't want you to study your Bible. He doesn't want you to receive from God's Word. Do you hear the Word of God? But the pursuits of this world make your hearing of no effect. Are other things in this life so important to you that God gets kind of choked out, pushed to the side? You hear the word, you hear the things that he's challenging you to do, you hear how he wants you to live for him, the calling that he has for you, but you say, you know what, I got another path, I got another pursuit, I got another desire, and we're kind of trying to serve two masters. Or do you hear the word, keep it, become a doer of the word, and see it bear fruit in your life? 
Are we obeying what God's word is telling us to do? Jesus said at the end of the sermon that he preached in chapter 6, don't just be hearers of what I say, be doers. And that's the challenge for us because we oh, Jesus' teaching is so great and is so encouraging and la, 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 la. Well, who cares if all we have it is mentally in our brain and we don't do anything with it? And Jesus knew that. He said, don't just listen to what I say. Do it. Obey it. You know, I have that with my girls all the time. I don't want you just to listen. I want you to actually put what I say into practice. Be obedient. I think so often we're like little rebellious kids with God, and God's just saying, you know what, it's nice that you write me a little note. Scarlett loves to write me notes and say, Daddy, I love you. It's like, you know, I love this, I love you note. What I'd rather have is you be obedient to me today, because that would mean so much more. And I think we do that with God. God, I wrote you this song, or God, I want to tell you how much I love you. I'm not going to obey you at all today, but I want to just express that in words. And I think God says, I'd much rather not hear I love you, and you show it through your obedience. Show it through doing what I've told you to do. Because Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. That's how you show me that you love me. Don't just tell me. At the beginning of Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus, and he's speaking to lots of churches, and most of these churches have a lot of rebukes. Ephesus, man, Jesus has a lot of wonderful things to say to them, but he has one thing that he has against them, and that is something I think connects well with what we're talking about this morning. In verse 4 of chapter 2, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You guys are doing this well, and you're doing that well, and you're doing this well, but you know what? There's one thing I have against you, and you know what it is? You left your first love, and that first love is Jesus himself. You're doing things for me, but you left me, time with me, that first love, that relationship that we used to have, you've left it. When you first got saved, you know, there's that amazing love that you have for Jesus. You just can't wait to spend time with him. You can't wait to get in his word. You just love him. And if you continue in that, you continue to make his word a priority, you continue to make time with him a priority, that love just deepens and grows and continues to get better and better. But the reality is, if you neglect that time with him, just like other relationships, and you probably see that in marriage, you see that in other relationships, oh, you start off dating and everything's so great, but you start neglecting that relationship and over time... You come and you realize, I left my first love. What it used to be is not what it's like now. And it's not God leaving us. It's us leaving him. It's not God saying, you know what, I don't want to spend time with you anymore. It's us saying, God, you know what, i got better things to do. I'm going to spend time doing other stuff. We're the ones who are stepping away from that time with the Lord, and ultimately, we're leaving our first love. And when that happens, we see these things take place. We start to get hardened to God's word. Especially in those areas where he says, you know what, you need to change here and you need to change there. Oh, no. We're not really rooted very deeply because we're not spending time with him. And then our pursuits start to become more worldly and they start choking out our relationship with him and our time with him. And we end up like the Ephesians believers, leaving our first love. You know, I know this from experience. There was a time in my Christian life where I can definitely say, I look back and I said, you know, I lost my first love. I left my first love. I remember I wasn't really living for Jesus anymore. I was doing things, but I wasn't spending much time with him. I totally neglected time in the Word, totally neglected time with him. 
And one Sunday I was at a church service and the pastor was teaching on Revelation 2 and he got to verse 4. And I knew that was me. I had lost and left my first love. And there was this guilt and there was this desire to change. And I was thinking, you know, what do I need to do? And the great thing is he went right to the next verse, verse 5, and it says this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. I left my first love, but you know what? There was a way to get back. And that was the encouraging thing to me. I think, oh, man, you know, what I used to have with Jesus and that time with him, and it was so much better than what I have now because I've neglected that and, and our relationship has suffered. But, you know, Jesus has said, you know what? You can get back to that. Just do right here what I say. First, remember where you have fallen. Remember what you did to start neglecting time with me and, and stop doing that. Second, repent. Repent of your sin. Repent of neglecting time with me. Repent of the fact that you've gotten hardened to my word. Repent of the fact that you know, you're not grounded like you used to be. Repent of the fact that you're starting to pursue other things that are hindering our relationship and just stop those things. And third, you need to do the first works again. Go back and do those things you used to do where you spent time with me every day, where you read your word every day, where you did those things to enhance our relationship and stop neglecting that stuff. And if you'll turn around, repent, and do that, we can have that relationship again that we once did. That night after I heard that teaching, I repented and made some specific changes. And you know, I found myself in a place where I just kept saying, you know, I'm going to try to find time for God today. The day goes by, I look back, man, I, it was just so busy, I didn't find it. I'm going to try to find God, time for God tomorrow. And I go through the day, and it's super busy, and you know, at the end of the day, I look back and think, oh, wow, I didn't find time today as well. Man, I'm going to try to find time for God the next day. And it was this pattern that's happening over and over, and I finally, the Lord is saying, you know what, you need to make time for me. Not try to find time for me. You make time for everything else that's important. You show up for work, you make time for that, and you don't even want to be there. We make time for what's important. So the reality is, I hear it so often from Christians, I just didn't find time for Jesus. No, that's because you didn't make time for Jesus. If he's really important, you will make time in your schedule that says, this is our time, and nothing's going to keep me from that time because you're too important. When we just have this, oh, I'm going to try to find time, it's like, well, he's not really that important, and if I have a little extra time where I'm not doing anything else that I'd rather be doing, then I'll give it to Jesus. And that rarely happens. We need to make that time if you want to get back, if you've lost that first love, if you've left that relationship. But you know what? If you're here this morning and you're in that place where you say, you know, yeah, that's me. I'm like the Ephesian believers. I've left that first love. My relationship with God's not like it used to be. I haven't been spending time with Him like I'm supposed to be. And it's suffered. My relationship suffered. The encouragement is you can get back there. All you need to do is come to the Lord and say, hey, I repent of what I've done. Forgive me of that and help me now to make the changes necessary to make you a priority again in my life. But remember something very important. John 15, 4 and 5 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me... And I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. See, the reality is, when you separate yourself from Jesus, there's no bearing fruit. That's ultimately what we should want as believers, is I want to bear fruit. I want to have the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. I want those things coming out of my life. But when we disconnect ourselves from Jesus, 
when we're not abiding in him, he says, without me, you can do a little bit. You can do some things. No, he says, without me, you can do absolutely nothing. You will not bear any spiritual fruit apart from Christ. I've definitely learned that the hard way. This is one of those things I knew intellectually, but took me a long time to actually believe practically because I thought, oh, I can accomplish this on my own. I can do that on my own. I don't really need God to bear fruit here. And every time I failed and every time it didn't happen and kept saying, without me, you can do nothing. You know, it's not rocket science. It's not complex. You want to bear fruit? Regularly spend time with Jesus. That's really the heart of it all. If you regularly spend time with Jesus, you don't neglect him. You don't neglect that relationship. Spend time in his word. Allow it to impact your life. Put it into practice, and you'll see that you're going to bear fruit. Your life's going to change. The biggest thing that's going to keep that from happening is just neglect it. Neglect time with him. Neglect your relationship with him, and you won't bear fruit, and you're going to really struggle So after Jesus explains this parable, he goes on to tell one of the reasons why it's so important that we obey God's word. There's many reasons, but he brings up another one that I think is important for us to consider. Notice what he says in verses 16 through 18. No one, when he's lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known or come to light. Therefore take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. As believers who hear the word of God, one of our responsibilities is to be the light to this dark world. You know, we have different responsibilities in the Bible. We're called to be lights. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. You know, all that's kind of speaking to the same thing, that we are God's representatives. This world, for many of them, the only Jesus that they're ever going to see is the Jesus that shines through you and me. That can be an exciting thought or it can be a scary thought. Because you can think from the scary side of, you're kidding me, the only Jesus they're going to see is through me, they're not going to see much. Or you might say, hey, you know what, I'm living for Jesus so much that what they're going to see through me is going to be something that's really going to impact them. I think so often we think, if I'm not obedient to God's word, it's only affecting me. Yeah, I mean, I don't do it. It's only going to impact me. It's only impacting my relationship with Jesus. No one else suffers. That's a lie of the enemy. Our relationship with God directly impacts every relationship that we have. Your relationship with your spouse is going to be better or worse depending on your time with God. Your relationship with your kids is going to be better or worse depending on your time with God. Your relationship with your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, you can name anyone you want. It's either going to be better or worse depending on your relationship with God. You neglect your relationship with God, guess what? Those wonderful fruits of the Spirit that all the other relationships want to see coming out of your life, that love, that joy, that patience, that kindness, that self-control, it's not going to be there. And it's going to hurt your other relationships because you're not going to have that and it's not going to come out of your life. And so it's going to harm that. And so this thought that, oh, if I just don't spend time with God, it only impacts me, is not true. And there's another group of people that it also impacts, not just the people that we're close to, not just the people that we love, it also impacts this world. Because one of the things that we're called to do is we're called to be a light, the light of Jesus, to shine to the darkness of this world. And when we're not hearing, 
We're not accepting, we're not applying the word of God to our lives. It hinders our light. It hinders our witness to this world who's in desperate need to see Christians actually live the Christian life. Because there's so many people in the world who have seen people who claim to be Christians who surely do not live the way that the Bible teaches. And they think, I want nothing to do with Christianity if that is what Christianity is. If what that person does, then forget it. That's actually the number one reason people give for why they want nothing to do with Christianity is hypocritical Christians who don't live what the Bible teaches. This world is in desperate need of people to stand up and say, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus does in a life when you're submitted to him, when you're committed to him, when you're following his word. You know, when we're not doing that, we become like a lamp that's covered so its light doesn't shine. Defeats its purpose. Jesus says, you're the light of the world, but sadly, when you don't spend time with me, it's like covering that light and you're just this dim thing or maybe you're completely dark and the world doesn't now see what they need to see. They need to see me shining through you and you're not allowing that to happen because you neglect me. Jesus goes on to say, therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Jesus reminds us that spiritual growth follows momentum, either positive or negative. When we have godly habits of hearing his word, receiving his word, living his word, more is built on that. When we have negative habits of neglecting time with God, neglecting the word, not receiving the word, it just gets worse and worse and it continues to have problems in our lives. So as believers, we have a responsibility not just to hear what Jesus says, but to obey it, to put it into practice. And it's not just for us, but it's for everyone in our sphere of influence and also for the lost, because we are to be a light to them. After Jesus shares all this, notice what happens, verse 19. Then his mother and brothers come to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So there's this huge crowd that Jesus has shared with, and they're crowded around him, and his biological mom and brothers come, and they want to see him. And people come to Jesus and say, Hey, you know, outside this crowd, who are your mother and brothers? And they want to see you. And Jesus responds by saying, You know what? Those in my family... My mother and brothers are the ones who not only hear, but do what I say. He brings it back again to this important vital point. So, hey, you want to be in the family of God? Don't just be a hearer of what I say. Be a doer of what I say. Put into practice the things that I tell you. Can the worship team come on up, please? You know, one of the things that Jesus has told us to do is to remember Him. And the way that we can remember Him is to remember the most significant thing that He did, to remember His death on the cross for our sins. And we're going to close this morning by doing that, and we're going to take communion together as a, a time just to really remember the sacrifice, to remember what Jesus has done. And um, as the worship team plays a song, I'm, I'm going to first read... Uh, scripture referring to communion. Uh, the elements are going to be passed out, but uh, I just want to encourage you. Uh, this is an open communion, meaning it's open to all of you who have accepted Christ. Uh, for any of you who have not yet, I would just ask you just let the communion elements pass by, but uh, we're going to read this passage and then just hold on to the elements. We'll take them together.
Um, but uh, the worship team's going to pr- uh, play. And while they're playing, I just want to encourage you, you know what, if this morning you've listened to this message and you say, I'm at that place where I've left my first love. I'm at that place where I've gotten harder to certain things in the Word. I'm at that place where I'm not rooted. I'm, I'm pursuing other things. You know, before you come and you take and you remember what Christ has done for you, I want to encourage you just to take some time and repent. Take some time and come to the Lord and say, you know what, God, forgive me for what I've done. I want my life to change. I want to make you a priority again. Help me to do that. And so as they're playing, I encourage you to do that. But I'm just going to read this passage of Scripture for you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.